from Freemason's Monthly Magazine, Volume 32, 1872. Masonry is becoming too popular. Well, why is this? The time was within my own recollection, when scarcely a Masonic book was in print. Now there are a greater variety of books on masonry than on almost any other subject. Almost every state has one or more Masonic publications. Many of the secular papers have a Masonic department, and perhaps nine-tenths of all the papers published in the United States during the year publish items in relation to masonry. Many of our members advertise it by adorning their persons with large breastpins, square and compasses, letter G's, 47th problems, etc., etc. Displays resplendent with the pomp and glitter of circumstance are made on funeral and other occasions. And at such times, the majestic tread of the Tyler with the drawn sword is in and of itself to melt the heart of the most violent opponent of our institution. When conversing with each other in this presence of the profane, we look owlish and clothe our language in hieroglyphics, throwing a mystery about our performances truly astonishing to the beholder. Some of us make merchandise of masonry and parade our wares on every proper and improper occasion. We have our public installation and addresses, and in many instances, more harm than good results therefrom. We have our festivals and banquets and invite our friends to, quote, participate, unquote. We publish our resolutions on almost every subject in the newspapers, also notices of our meetings and the degree to be conferred, etc., etc. So that, all in all, although Masonry is said to be a, quote, secret society, unquote, there is very little going on in or about the Lodge that may not be known by the intelligent observer. Our Masonic ship has drifted too far from shore. The beacon lights by which we were guided in the olden times are lost, and the general desire to let the world and the rest of mankind know that we are Masons. I would not hide our light under a bushel. That is not necessary. Our light will shine if we do our duty. The light reflected from our altars reaches the homes of the widow and fatherless. As your motto elegantly and truthfully expresses it, let us then advertise ourselves by walking uprightly before God and man, administering to the necessities of those who need our assistance, and so live and act that others seeing our good works may be constrained to go and do likewise. Hi, 
Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is the Freemasonic History of the United States, Part 7. The 1870s. Ulysses S. Grant, Oddfellow, Civil War hero, is still President of the United States. Known in history as a president who kept the peace, peace perhaps defined loosely. That's because America still experienced the Great Sioux War, where Custer had his last stand. In the background was happening the Ten Years' War, where Spanish colonialism was being resisted in the Caribbean, Cuba, and the surrounding islands around the United States, where the U.S. supposedly remained neutral, even though they played both sides. From the U.S.'s point of view, to the victor belong the spoils. America was also starting to feel the first pangs of the Industrial Revolution. The class divide once again growing with the influx of immigrants and railroad, mining, and oil tycoons. Freemasonry was also still very popular in the United States, but it was not yet dominated again by the 1%. But Freemasonry was starting to be dominated by a new undercurrent of racist thought, inserted and reinforced by arguably the two most influential Freemasons in the country, Albert Pike and Albert Mackey, and the most popular form of Freemasonry in the United States, the body of the southern jurisdiction of the Scottish Rite. Albert Mackey had reiterated the larger Masonic edict of lodges only accepting freeborn people. This, of course, excluded almost every African-American currently living in the United States without directly saying so. Albert Pike had spent 14 years of his life tirelessly and meticulously studying the original Hindu Vedic and Zoroastrian Zend Avista texts for clues to what he described as the first religion that was created not by the Semitic peoples, but by the Aryan peoples. Albert Pike's most influential book, Morals and Dogma, surprisingly had this theme embedded in it, even if casual readers didn't interpret it that way. But his later books and lectures on the Rig Veda and other Hindu texts made it very clear that on some level, his fascination with these texts had to do with his own white pride and deconstruction of his own previous beliefs. Now Pike believed that the Bible, which was created by the Semitic race, not the Aryan race, was merely a pale copycat filtration of the original themes that originally appeared in the Aryan religious texts. Pike once said, 
the single fact that we owe not one single truth, not one idea in philosophy or religion to the Semitic race is, of itself, ample reward for years of study. And it is a fact indisputable. If I read the Veda and Zend Avista, all right. Pike wasn't necessarily anti-Semitic, and that's not why he necessarily said that in that sentence. But Pike clearly had a fixation on the racial nature, on basically the Aryan race being superior to other races. He does make that very clear, actually, in his writings. Now, just one example that I'm talking about, Pike's lecture of the area, it's lecture one, the Aryan race, country character and the manners of the Indo-Aryans. You hardly utter a sentence of our English tongue without speaking some word which was spoken in the same sense by that ancient people, 10,000 years ago or more, in the mountain valleys which they first inhabited. You have their idiosyncrasies of thought, the same indelible characteristics of race, for you are their descendants. From them, you have your excellencies and your faults, your energy, your vigor of intellect, your philosophical cast of thought, your indomitable resolution, your persistent pursuit of the object you desire to attain from the religious leaning and inclination of your minds. From them, your social institutions and relations and the foundation stones of your laws, customs, and habits. From them, all your philosophical and religious doctrines. They were white men, as we were. The superior race in intellect, in manliness, the governing race of the world the conquering race of all other races. They called themselves Arya, the Aryans, the warlike, or some think the noble. They were the ancestors of the Greek and Roman heroes, as well as of the northern Vikings, and especially prided themselves upon which we call manliness. Pike also says that nothing in the field of study has ever so much interested me as this endeavor to penetrate into the idita of the ancient Aryan thought, to discover what things, orbs, principles, or phenomena, or potencies of nature our remote ancestors worshipped as gods, and what their deities really were, and the conception of the composers of the Vedic hymns. I have felt the most intense satisfaction in deciphering, as it seemed to me I did, these hieroglyphics of the ancient Aryan thought, infinitely better worth the labor than all that are engraved on the monuments of Egypt and Assyria. So there he's sort of throwing shade, obviously not only of other races, of course, he's also throwing shade on sort of the Egyptology, Egypt-obsessed strain of Freemasonry. But I think this is actually one of the best-kept secrets open secrets, if you will. It's not secret at all. It's all in all of Albert Pike's writings on this subject that he spent 14 years of his life on. He spent 14 years of his life becoming obsessed with the Aryan people. And he does seem to have a white pride racial component as to why he became so obsessed with that subject. Now, it's kind of amusing that an official Masonic book trying to sort of explain a little bit of this 
It's actually one of the only documents I was able to find on the internet at all about this idea that Pike was obsessed with the Aryan peoples because of racism or white supremacy. It's actually the only thing I could find that addresses this. So when I said it's one of the best kept secrets, that it's an open secret, that Albert Pike, the most influential Freemason, became absolutely obsessed with the Aryan race towards the end of his life. There's very little writings examining this accusation. Apparently the book Behind the Lodge Door by Paul A. Fisher is one of the only books that makes this accusation and brings this up. Now, this Masonic publication that I'm reading to you from called Character Counts, Freemasonry is a National Treasure that's defending Pike here is actually defending it against the accusations made by Paul A. Fisher. But, you know, Paul A. Fisher in his book, which I've read some of, I haven't read the whole thing, it barely goes into Pike's sort of obsession with this subject. And I think just based on the writings you can find for free on the internet, it's very clear that this was a major influence in Freemasonry that sort of permanently shaped it from that point on. Thank you for listening to this preview clip of the Media Roots radio series, The Freemasonic History of the United States, Part 7, titled Masonic Rosicrucianism, Hermetic Theosophy, Blavatsky and Pascal Beverly Randolph. The full episode is eight hours and nine minutes long. And right now, this series is about 30 hours long. If you'd like to get access to the entire episode and the full series, you can do so by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio. Thanks. <laughs>